a young woman is murdered. And policeman Jude Turner is assigned the task of investigating, but it's 1930s Australia, and it's Jude's children, Morris and Charlotte, who turn detective to solve the mystery in Sean Wilson's novel, Gemini Falls. So, Sean, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me here, David. 1930s Australia. We need to sort of set the, the sort of context. What was going on at that time? Well, I think most people probably recognise the early 30s as the start of the Great Depression. So that's where um, we find the characters. It's um, unemployment starting to pick up and there's a lot of um, struggle in the community. A struggle? Well, actually, it's rival rivalry, would you call it that at all? Yeah, yeah. there's a little bit of haves and have-nots, and um, especially in... The, in the town in Gemini, there's a division between the unemployed kind of itinerant people and the community there. And locals. they're a convenient group to blame, really, if anything goes wrong. Polio. Now, this was uh, uh, another, what, was it pandemic or just endemic going through the community? I think from, at least from my research, there's a lot of smaller epidemics that popped up um, until the 50s, until the vaccine came out. So it's probably... Uh, around that time um, just popping up in different communities. But it led to some interesting behaviour. Yeah, yeah, certainly did. Um, what did <laughs> George have? Yeah, the, one of the characters in the um, in the novel, his mum um, uh, constructs a wreath for him to wear around that has camphor and there's, I suppose, a lot of um, uh, ideas around what's going to stop this thing that no one really knows what it is. And there's know? also a psychological effect. At one point, you've got Mrs. Elliot blaming, uh, she caught polio and it's your fault. So there's this psychological trauma as well. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a um, an impulse with some people uh, when a kind of crisis happens to blame other people. Other people bring people together and other people are looking to point the finger. So that definitely happens. Yeah. Yeah, you, now, your narrator is 13-year-old Morris. And amongst other things, he has a fascination with astronomy. It's a very useful sort of pastime to have, but you've used it also as a narrative device. Yeah, kind of all the way through the book. I think it's it's something interesting. Those um, Greek myths that are attached to the stars can be very instructive in people's lives. And so Morris's father, Jude, um, that's kind of how he shares knowledge and passes down ideas to Morris. But, well, because the relationship is not fraught at all, but there's not the communication between father and son necessarily yeah definitely and i think that's something that um happened then and is still happening now between father and son and so we look for other ways to talk about things in sport and other metaphors to connect yeah but also then in terms of the narrative father says looking at the stars is like looking into the past it touches on well what we're doing that this detective mystery there are several mysteries in fact in this story because um, the father, Jude, has a, a past. He's got to go back to Gemini Falls. Interestingly, the township has an ast uh, astrological name, but there's something about his past. There's something about the murder that has taken place in Gemini Falls. But just tease out this notion of Gemini Falls and its significance, the name of the town. Yeah, I think I've... Um I'm interested in the way you can thread that through an entire narrative. And so even down to the, the town itself, which the, the myth of Gemini is about these brothers, the, um, the semi, um, semi godlike brothers and 
those stories, how they can kind of weave in and represent things in people's lives. So uh, that kind of is all the way through the narrative. They're looking to the stars for the mysteries of the universe and looking at the town and the secrets and mysteries of that town. Yeah, and there's a gas surrounding a planet, which is sort of the unknown. But mm. Gemini gets its name from these hills, the Twin Hills. They're called Castor and Pollux by the people of the town. So physically, it's embodied in the town. But in terms of the narrative, you offset the haves and the have-nots, the employed and the unemployed. And also then, of course, in Gemini Falls, there's Jude comes back, but there's his brother, yeah. James, as well. So you're counterpointing those two as well. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of that going on. And there's a lot of, I think, binary distinctions in the time as well. Um, there's, I think, a lot of people who use like um, use a crisis like that as a populist way to gather um, gather power and gain power and there's also people who are trying to um, to heal the community and so you've got that division going on as well in the town now the characters we meet in Gemini Falls highlight th that polarization uh, and the social attitudes that were at the time. I think you're also suggesting at new attitudes emerging as well. But first, there's the father of the murdered girl, Will Fletcher. Not a very nice person. No, and I think uh, it's important to explore that, um, very much exploring the light and the dark in the town and in the community and reflecting what's going on in our community now in 2022 as well through that story. I mean, unfortunately, uh, domestic violence is a thing that happened then and is very much happening now and um, I wanted to explore that in the story. I mean, he searches the crowd. This is Morris. When his eyes pass over me, my chest starts to thump. I remember his hand rising and falling on Mary Fletcher, striking her down to the ground. I remember the way he stood over her as if looking down on an animal. And he divides the town and he's blaming the unemployed that are living on the outskirts for the death of his daughter. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think uh, it's, yeah, like I said before, there's some people who are looking to point the finger and they're trying to uh, use a crisis to um, to have a broader kind of aim. And so a murder like this kind of is like a pressure cooker building up um, pressure on the town. Uh, and you've got um, people pointing the finger and trying to move on those unemployed people. Very much a thing that happened in the 30s as well. Yeah, well, it even happens today. Blame mm. blame the outcast. Exactly. But it makes him a figure of suspicion. We've also got a young man by the name of Eamon who comes under suspicion. Now, he was a friend, more than a friend, of, of Catherine, the murdered girl. Something passes over Eamon's face. It's a flash, lightning showing the clouds in a night sky. And then it's over, everything going back to darkness. But here's the interesting thing, because basically Morris and um, Lottie, the two children of Jude, have come to the town. Lottie's a young woman uh, exploring, investigating... Uh, new friendships, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. So now she has the potential of taking up with Eamon, who's also, according to Morris, under suspicion for Catherine's death. So this is adding another layer and dimension. Yeah, and I think that's common in a small town like that. You've got um, people with multiple different relationships and they intersect and, they, uh, and they're confused and there's a lot of suspicion flying around. Uh, and very much in a story like this, in a murder mystery, you've got to have more than one suspect on the go at one time. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, this is part and parcel of a, of a detective mystery, who done it. 
But curiously, it's the children that are making these discoveries. The children are going around back channels, yeah, basically, yeah. not direct investigation, but actually sort of going where they shouldn't. This seems to be a thread from the beginning of the novel where George and um, Morris have gone to the other side uh, of the river to see where these folks live, uh, but also then in Gemini Falls looking and being where they shouldn't. Yeah, and I think I'm really interested in those times, especially in summer when you've got a lot of time as a child, those kind of pivotal moments happen and you start to learn uh, about the world and you don't quite like a lot of the things you're discovering about the world. And so I'm interested in that and exploring that in the story. But it also raises doubt. I mean, there's one event where um, James, Uncle James, Uncle Jim has actually given uh, some food or, or a slaughtered lamb to the people of the uh, on the outskirts who are unemployed. And this sort of is a counterpoints or contrasts with his um, overt attitude which, where he's condemning them. And Morris sees this, so he's undecided. He can't work out what, in fact, is going on. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm interested in exploring that there's good and bad in all people. And I think the, in a lot of stories you read, there's there's a tendency to create heroes and villains, and I'm not as interested in that. I'm interested in uh, the good and bad in individuals yeah. uh, and how that manifests in their behaviour. But as a 13-year-old, how do you read people's behaviour, yeah, especially yeah. when you're somewhere you shouldn't be yeah and even now in in my 30s how do i read people's behavior it's still a mystery <laughs> to me and i think it's uh putting myself into the 13 year olds eyes pretty easy even now headspace yeah. even now but counterpointing with this we have some other interesting characters flo morris's cousin now she provides a lot of the drive and impetus she's a, a very forthright New age woman, yeah, in some ways, yeah, yeah, and, and um, she very much uh, goes against the gender expectations um, of the time as well. And so, uh, I thought she was an interesting character to have and to compare against Sam, her friend, who's also kind of going against gender expectations in a town where that is very much an important part of life. Well, in a lot of those sort of isolated communities, there was a sort of set expectation especially mm. in the 1930s about yeah. how things would be so yes i was going to mention sam his father is the mayor of the town and yet what does sam want to be when he sam wants up? to be an actor so he he wants to make things up he doesn't want to um stand up and give speeches and try and um win votes he wants to he wants the artistic life and so there's there's tension throughout families, there's tension in the community, but there's tension in between those interpersonal relationships between father and son, um, father and daughter, uh, yeah. And so Castor and Pollux, these, mm. these counterpointing, which goes all the way through. And so the weight of discovery actually lies with the children as, they, as we go through this story, as I said, they're where they shouldn't be. Um, and there are revelations because there's another backstory here as to why Jude had to leave in the first place. How much can you tell us about yeah. that without giving anything away? Yeah, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. like you said, but um, uh, Morris's mother, uh, mother um, Jude's wife, uh, died, and we find that out early on in the story. Um, but there's not all that much information about it because Jude is is uh, is 
very reticent about it. He won't he won't talk to Morris about it. He's he's grieving, and so in a way that's kind of his flaw, his major flaw in the story. Mm. Jude is that he won't express himself to his son. Well, he won't express himself to his son about the fact that um, his wife and uh, Morris's mother has died, but also how they met in the first place mm. and and the backstory there and how it impacts on Jude's return. To Gemini Falls. Yeah. So there's another discovery. Yeah, and how that filters out through a family as well. I think everyone in their family have secrets. They have things that they don't quite know about and they, that are hinted at when you're younger and um, you start to, as you get older, those things start to be revealed to you and uh, it's very much happening for Morris. So it's Morris and Flo and Sam that find out uh, who was responsible for Christine Fletcher's murder. There's suspicion cast on several people, Eamon and Christine's father even, and uh, there's that family secret as well. So the book is Gemini Falls. Sean Wilson is the author, and it's from Affirm Press. So, Sean, thank you very much for talking with Thanks me today. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks so much. Well, our book is not anywhere near Gemini Falls and it's not anywhere <laughs> close to your depression age. It's here right now. Where did you live when you first left home? Did you look for a place with cheap rent? Nina Kenwood has written about the complications of being in a share house in this warm and funny book, Unnecessary Drama. Welcome, Nina. <clears throat> Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you've got Brooke. She's 18. How would you describe her? Um, <clears throat> Brooke is a very type A, very organised, likes rules, likes order, uh, very anxious young woman is how I would describe her. Of course, when she first comes into the share house, all she wants to do is tidy the cupboards, <laughs> clean up the sink. <laughs> and in her words, here I am in my new house, an adult at last, independent, free, worldly, some might even say sophisticated. <laughs> Well, she's moved from the country to Melbourne to start uni. Harper, the woman who runs the share house, is a year older and her parents own the house. And much to Brooke's surprise and horror, who comes to share the other room? Jessie, who is her friend turned enemy from high school. Mm, yes. Brooke would appreciate a laminated list of house rules covering all those things like chores and you know paying the bills and who puts the bins out but instead Harper says there are only three house rules what were they that's right there's no pets no romance between housemates and no unnecessary drama mm, yes well we'll see about that <laughs> When Brooke and Jessie were both 14, there was an incident that caused their friendship to become enemy status. Since then, Brooke has been in other relationships and the last one also ended abruptly. Mm -hmm. What happened here? She has a high school boyfriend, Tristan, who she likes because he likes her that kind of high school relationship. Someone's interested in you. You get together. You're very well suited, but the spark isn't really there and he breaks up with her because he's actually been in love with someone else the whole time, which, you know, leaves her feeling a little bit unlovable and ditched. <laughs> yeah. Well, Harper, this one of the sharehouse girls, and her girlfriend, Penny, set Brooke up with a blind date. It's Penny's cousin, Henry. 
they need a photo. So they organised a photo shoot. That was really funny reading. It was really <laughs> funny. You know, how to turn one girl into a, um, a very old school literary badass or a sexy athlete just with clothes <laughs> and, you know, look. The date's organised with Henry. What unnecessary drama occurs? Well, Brooke is waiting in the cafe and uh, she has only seen a quick photo of him and uh, a young man approaches the table and she thinks, oh, this is Henry and I'm going to be, you know, uh, sophisticated and very Melbourne and I'm going to give him a hug and a a kiss on the cheek, hello, and she does that and then discovers that it's not actually Henry, it's the waiter coming to take (laughs) her order. So uh, obviously she is uh, um, flees in humiliation before the date even begins. Harper has a birthday and there is a group who go down to the local pub. Henry's there as well as Tristan and Kendra, the girlfriend that Tristan dumped her for at the pub. They all know the story about Tristan. So Harper suggests something. Well, Harper and Penny still want Brooke to have a chance with Henry, so they suggest maybe they pretend to be a couple uh, just so when she's seeing her ex-boyfriend she can say that she has uh, she's moved on. Uh, but Henry doesn't really want to do it and Jesse steps in. And so this is sort of the beginning, well, not the beginning, uh, this is a, mo- a crucial moment for the two of them coming together in the romance of the book. Well, Jesse teaches this down the pub, Brooke, to play pool and they have a great time playing against Tristan and Henry. But how? what do they do to make their relationship really look solid well look it's the classic um i don't know if you read romance but romance readers out there will know there are some classic tropes that uh people love and this is the classic fake dating one and when you're fake dating you have to appear as though you are really together and that often involves a kiss um yes (laughs) this is their sort of first kiss without it being a real first Mm. kiss and remember house rule number two no romance between housemates. So how did Brooke think she was going to meet the love of a life? Uh, she, <laughs> she did have hopes. She had all these scenarios in her head of maybe how she could meet um, a cute boy, which involved uh, having the same order at a coffee shop and, you know, the barista calls out, the order and they both go for it at the same time or in a bookstore and they bump into each other and uh, start talking books and all these very romantic scenarios that never actually happen in real life. Well, there's romance, but there's also uni. And Brooke Mm. is studying economics, but there's another subject. And here I'm going to ask Nina Kenwood to read from Unnecessary Drama. This is my heart class, the one I picked with hands shaking with guilt and trepidation because I was doing it for pure enjoyment and that's not what studying is supposed to be about. Enjoyment? Enjoyment is frivolous and I am here to learn, to achieve, to figure out a serious career path. But every time I've stepped into the room for our creative writing class, I've had to bite back a smile of pure happiness at the prospect of being here on campus in a room with high ceilings, big windows and a general aura of importance and significance with people who just want to talk about books and writing. PJ Mayfield is an author. She wrote a very bleak, critically acclaimed book two years ago. I hadn't heard of it, but I bought it when I saw she was in charge of the course. It's very good in that literary way where most of the characters are sad and depressed and say cruel things that are funny, but not in a way I'm comfortable laughing at because I'm worried I don't actually get it. (laughs) I think 
there's a lot of us who feel about literary fiction <laughs> like that. <laughs> when Brooke and Tristan were together, Tristan wrote her a love poem. How mm. hard was it to write such an awkward horrible poem. <laughs> that was enjoyable. That's that's the well look, writing a rom-com and writing humor is is always a joy to write and um those scenes figuring out those scenes like the bad first date, the bad love poem, um they're just they're so much fun to write. There's also thoughts on writing and getting published mm. that the lecturer imparts. Quote, the inevitable heartbreak, you, but you do it anyway. Are these some of your own thoughts? Uh, yes, I th- and I did study creative writing at uni and, you know, from a very early time you're told you will make no money being a writer in Australia, which is true, which is true. <laughs> um, but it's sort of that push and pull of do what you love and find a way to do what you love, but you'll probably never be published and there's no money to be made. And, and so the, the positive and the negative, since I was trying to capture that, those dual kind of narratives of follow your passion, do what you love, and what you love is going to be a disaster. So, <laughs> the lecturer also says, you know, do all of, all of this, what you love, but also exercise. <laughs> it's a run around the the tan that it causes another unnecessary drama when Brooke runs into Jessie. And then Jessie has to take her to hospital. Yes. You've brought in a few nice little female stuff in this that often you don't read about. Yes, yes. She has an incident that involves uh, an ovarian cyst, which is something that is quite common for a lot of women. And I wanted to sort of bring that, you know, when you're thinking of, oh, what's something that can cause a young woman to go to hospital you don't it could have been a sprained ankle I guess while she was running but I wanted to bring in the experiences of what I know a lot of um, young women I know have experienced uh, well and also being unhinged with period pain yeah now that's that's mentioned a bit through this and but Brooke doesn't do what other most 18 year olds do she doesn't drink that's right She has a complicated relationship with alcohol and I wanted to explore that and explore the idea when you're young and you don't drink, you're always asked, like you have to have a reason. People need to know why. It can't just be, I don't want to. And for Brooke, it's very complicated. It relates a lot to her anxiety, to what's going on with her father and his drinking and her sister and her sister's drinking and how being around people in her family when they're drinking makes her feel out of control and Brooke's greatest fear is being out of control. control. She needs to be sober to make sure everyone else is safe. This is Mm -hmm. a quote. Her father, I don't like who you are when you're drinking, even though everyone else does. And with her sister Lauren, it's more, I'm so tired of being scared of what might happen to you. So there's this real sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. But when Lauren, the sister, comes to the pub with the group and starts flirting with Jessie, there's another unnecessary (laughs) drama that erupts. Yes. (laughs) Lauren was a lot of fun to write as the... And I wanted to turn that idea of... Uh, Brooke is a younger sister and usually you often hear about the older sister being the responsible one and the parenting of the sibling. But um, in this family, in this story, Brooke, the younger sibling, is the responsible one and her sort of vibrant, outgoing older sister, she's always felt a little bit like she's in her shadow, but they're very close. And Lauren 
is a fun character to write because she is a character that causes chaos and you need a chaos-causing character. And so she's sort of been mentioned throughout the book and then I bring her in in the, the last third to cause some chaos and some drama and also to help Brooke reach sort of some life lessons and some learnings. And yes, I also learned something too. I never knew that an Arnott's family assorted pack of biscuits could be part of a psychological challenge. <laughs> Would you like to explain this? Oh, Brooke uh, lays out some biscuits uh, from the Arnott's family pack for Jessie and then she has very strong thoughts on what the first biscuit you choose might mean about who you are. Now, had you had any thought, we're not going to tell what it was, but it was... Uh, <laughs> Had you had any thought about, you know, if you chose the malt or the Mari biscuit? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some that if you chose, you would be white. Oh, yeah, that's it. No longer a romantic prospect. Teddy bear? Teddy bear is okay. <laughs> Laid back outdoors type. <laughs> <laughs> Brooke has many anxieties about her own abilities and overthinks other people's actions, but good friends and embarrassing circumstances lead to much humour in Unnecessary Drama, written by Nina Kenwood. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I've got a question about research. I mean, Sean's had to research his 1930s Australia in detail. I'm just wondering what research Nina did in terms of uh, wandering around bookshops, hoping yeah, to meet. Yeah, reading my old high school diaries, uh, <laughs> getting back into the mindset of being an 18-year-old, stepping out into the world for the first time. A lot of mental research. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> and if I may cross and ask Sean, uh, did you have to research the Greek mythologies or, or the start, the astrological science, or, do, or were you aware of them? Yeah, and I was really worried about getting it wrong as well, especially the spelling of some of those Greek names. So um, I think I, I checked it about three or four times as I was writing the story and going through the edits. But that was a real joy to learn more about the, those kind of foundational stories of, um, of Western narratives. Mm. Yeah. And also that, that fills out, you know, the, the mythology uh, of the time and how people explain things away in back in the ancient Greek days and such like. So that was fascinating. As well. times but kids often had that fascination with astronomy. Oh, I want to know about Scotch fingers. What yeah. what, what what do they tell about? Uh, they are good. They oh. are the best. They're I the best thank option. For that. I reckon they're more like Gemini. You can because they're two parts. Oh, that's a good part. that's a good link. You gotta break them <laughs> evenly. And then do you dunk or not? Of course dunk. Okay, yeah. right. That's yeah. crucial. Did you know that Arnott's are going to stop making them? So You're kidding me. That's, no, oh, that's heresy. Was just the world will never be the same. How will you choose a partner if you don't? <laughs> <laughs> as Arnott's thought about this question. Long-term implications. <laughs> well, this is the end. <laughs> a weird end <laughs> to some serious fiction. Indeed. Well, I was talking to Sean Wilson about his novel Gemini Falls from Affirm Press. And I was speaking with Nina Kenwood about unnecessary drama through text. <laughs> 